Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we spoke to Louis van Arn, the man who turned the process of learning a language into snackable mobile lessons. This week, we hear from an entrepreneur who works with scientists and governments to combat cybercrime. One of the things on the threat actor side is that the folk on that side of the fence cooperate. They share information. They don't necessarily trust each other, but information moves quickly. If there's a new type of attack, it propagates across that world really quickly. On the good side, that doesn't happen so much because people sort of say, well, it's your problem to sort out. I think that law enforcement, industry, academic and consumer need to come together more. And in particular, industry needs to get a lot, lot smarter. That was the voice of Tom Elubi, Chief Executive of Crossword Cybersecurity, a UK company that works with universities to identify promising research in the field of cybersecurity. He came into the studio to talk to Andrew Bounds, the FT's Enterprise Editor. What is Crossword trying to do? Crossword is a technology transfer company. We work with universities that are doing interesting research in cybersecurity and we help them commercialise that research. So we have looked at every cybersecurity project at every university in the UK. We've identified the ones that we think are really interesting. We go and talk to the professors. We talk to the tech transfer people at the university about how we can transfer it out. And then we either bring in the intellectual property under the Crossword umbrella or we spin it out into a separate standalone company. And can you give a couple of examples of great tech coming out of British universities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. Britain is really, really good at cyber research. We've looked at a lot of research around the world, and some amazing stuff is going on. There are about 50 universities in the UK that are really doing cyber stuff, and about 20 that are very, very heavy duty. You've got folk like Professor Nigel Smart down at Uh, Bristol, which is a really strong centre for cryptography, working in an area called multi-party computation, which is an area around how you can run algorithms on encrypted data so that nobody ever actually gets to see the underlying data. That's very, very interesting and becoming commercially viable. Professor Shujin Lee down at Surrey, who's really a leader in the area of passwords and the evolution of passwords, and has come up with an approach called Pass Infinity, which is now being investigated. We're talking to people all over the world, US, Singapore, India, UK, obviously, about its applicability. Coventry University, we've spun out some very, very interesting network monitoring research there that's gone into a company called CyberOwl that was picked recently to be one of seven GCHQ accelerator companies. So there's just great stuff going on. Tell me a little bit about what is GCHQ and what's it doing in this accelerator? GCHQ is the UK government's national security agency that looks at monitoring what's going on around the world. And it has a very, very keen interest in cybersecurity. And it wants to try and encourage the cybersecurity industry and uh, ecosystem in the UK. So it was involved in setting up an accelerator and looking for companies that were doing really, really interesting things and bringing them in and helping them to develop quickly so that the technology finds its way into the real world. So it's effectively a spy agency trying to harness the private sector. 
as a lot of agencies do because they want to harness the private sector because it makes the whole of the UK stronger if we're building a lot of technology that's finding its way into the hands of companies and individuals then the UK as a whole hardens itself against attack. And how easy is it to translate those ideas into commercially usable products and software? It can be a challenge to translate ideas. When the academics do the work, they're often not thinking about how it will be applied in the commercial sector down the track. And that's fine because they're not supposed to, really. But sometimes we'll go along and see a professor and he'll say... You know, I've got this breakthrough idea that I've been working on for the last five years and we'll say, oh, can we have a look at it? And he'll say, of course, and pull out an academic paper with equations in it and say, here you go. So we've got to take it from there to how on earth do we turn that into a product that we can then turn into a company that we can convince anyone to fund that we can get out into the market. So it can be a real challenge. It's not as easy. There are some other areas of tech transfer where the universities will create a prototype and maybe they've already worked with industry. So the tech transfer challenge becomes about taking that and industrialising it and scaling up. But in cyber, you're having to reach a lot further into the university and you are often starting with an academic paper with mathematical symbols in it and trying to turn that into a business. So your physics background is vital then to do this work? I think my physics background and my background as a software engineer just about gives me the credibility with my very smart team that they don't immediately fall about laughing when I make suggestions. (laughs) I have heard sometimes some venture capitalists say, you know, the professor's just looking for someone to pay for his research budget and, and not necessarily a product at the end of it. I think what's happening is that professors and academics in general are getting more interested about their research getting into the real world. In the research world, there's something called impact. So when you're a university bidding for your next funding from the Research Council, you have to say what impact previous research has had in the real world. And being able to show that a previous piece of research was picked up by a company like Crossword, turned into a product and taken out to the commercial world makes a real difference in your next funding application. So academics are becoming a lot more interested in how their research can result in real-world impact. They're also seeing what other academics around the world are doing. So they see their colleagues in the US who have made huge amounts of money by spinning out technology and so forth, and they think to themselves, maybe we can do some of that as well, and they can. And are there enough investors outside the US who are interested in backing this technology? There are, actually. You know, I always say to people, in the UK, in my experience, there is no shortage of early-stage funding. There may be challenges around scale-up funding and and so forth, but in terms of that first £50,000, £100,000, £150,000, it is relatively straightforward if you have a good piece of research, a good piece of technology and you can show that there is some level of market demand, and then you can put the right sort of structures around it in terms of team and capability, that will get funded in the UK. And you helped advise the UN about cyber security challenges. When you look at the development of the tech industry now, internet-connected devices, you know, fridges that will order your milk and so on, there's an awful lot of headlines now, driverless cars could be overtaken by cyber hackers. How crucial is it to solve these security challenges to actually stop the tech revolution grinding to a halt? In my opinion, it's absolutely vital. I was having some discussions with a group of chief information security officers recently, and they were talking about 
Will there be a cyber fatality, as they called it, over the next two or three years? And what they meant by that was, will a well-known company that everyone knows, that's well-respected, actually go out of business as a result of a cyber attack? And they sort of split about 50-50 on this. But those who said there will be a cyber fatality said, look, at some stage that will happen. And when it happens the whole of industry will really wake up to the threat of cybersecurity. There's almost a feeling that industry sort of takes it seriously, but not quite as seriously as they might. They still see it as a technology problem that the guys in IT need to get sorted out, as opposed to an existential problem to their business. And some people believe that it will take that sort of cyber fatality to change that mood. You do see around the world often when companies are hit by a cyber attack, their share price immediately falls by 10%, 20%, 5%, whatever it is. But then within about 30 days, 60 days, it climbs back to where it was again. And I think sometimes that gives boards the feeling that they can be more relaxed than they ought to be really about this. But as you say, with the Internet of Things, what you've got there is a huge number of additional computing devices that from the cyber attacker's point of view can be used as weapons to attack an organization. So there was an attack in the US at the back end of 2016, a company called DIN, D-Y-N. And the attack was triggered by someone who had managed to compromise a large number of Internet of Thing type devices and then get them all to flood this company at the same time. And it was a huge attack, absolutely huge attack. Liberia also faced a similar attack, the country of Liberia as a whole. These sorts of attacks will grow and grow over the coming years. So you look out two, three, four years' time, you will see attacks that will probably be multiples, you know, 10 times, 100 times the scale that we're seeing today. And companies, if they use the technologies that they've got today, won't be able to stand up to that sort of attack. And one problem with companies that are compromised is finding out they've been compromised. We've seen that with Yahoo and some other companies where it might take a year or two before they realise it. I think CyberOwl is working on ways of detecting attacks earlier. Yes, that is a real problem. You know, how early can you detect that you're under an attack? And can you spot that something is going on, possibly even before the attack gets going? Because sometimes there are signals or indicators, but they're not clear enough to tell you that there's definitely attacks. And CyberL, which spun out of the research done at Coventry University, is looking at how can you detect those indicators really, really early on in an attack or even before the attack has started in order to be able to say there's something going on there. The analogy that somebody used was tsunamis. When there's a tsunami, apparently one of the first things that happens is that all the water on the beach rushes out and that's an indicator that you really ought to turn around and start running to the highest possible ground because something is going to happen the other thing that people say is that birds fly away and so forth so cyber al is looking for what are those indicators that tell you that an attack has started there's some probing going on that you can detect early enough to be able to do something about it Can you give any examples? I think an air conditioning unit could tell you if you're under cyber attack, for example. Yeah, so there was an attack on an organisation in the US and one of the ways that the threat actors managed to get into the systems 
rather than going direct and trying to hack the core systems, the building was basically a smart building. So the air- Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Conditioning and the lights and so forth were all connected to the mainframe systems. So they hacked the air conditioning systems and then came in electronically through that route into the main systems. Now, in the process of hacking the air conditioning systems, those particular air conditioning units started to behave differently to the other air conditioning units. And if something had been just watching the behaviour of everything and looking for anything that was outside of the norm. It might have signalled that something a little bit odd is going on there. We wonder what's going on. And the people spotting these things might have said, actually, we don't know exactly what's going on, but let's have a careful look. And then they would have seen some activity that may have triggered them to take some action. I have to say, if the air conditioning goes funny at the FT office in, in London, we just assume it's the air conditioning going funny because the building's rather old. But I don't think we're at the smart level yet. Personally, then, as someone as a cybersecurity expert, do you embrace all these devices? Is your home full of internet-connected devices and Alexa and so on? <laughs> I do have to keep on top of these devices, so I do use them. I need to understand them. You know, you've got to immerse yourself in the world of technology, I think. And I'm not a sort of absolute gadget geek but i am quite an active user so what's your favorite i am quite enjoying alexa at the moment just because i can go in another room and say alexa volume 20 and then everyone shouts at me for making it really loud and, <laughs> and you've just done that to everyone at home I should absolutely think. <laughs> of course. sorry about that <laughs> just going on to your background you grew up in africa you still do a lot of work there where does africa sit in this tech revolution so actually, I grew up uh, partly in England, partly in different parts of Africa. Africa, some parts of it are really, really interesting when it comes to the technology revolution. So Kenya is doing some very, very interesting stuff around mobile payments. Nigeria has some really interesting tech guys coming up very quickly, particularly around finance. And fintech is very strong there. Ghana has some very, very interesting tech communities, obviously South Africa. So what you're seeing is pockets of folk starting to build communities, you know, Africans in general can be very, very entrepreneurial. Sometimes when you're limited in the uh, resources that you have at your disposal, you can get very clever about how you use those resources. And there are some incredibly brilliant folk across the continent. And people often forget just how big the continent is, you know, 1.2 billion people and very young as well. So 40% of the population is under the age of 15. So you've got this massive young population. And those young people are embracing technology, learning about it and doing some amazing things. And that's why, for example, we've set up a girls school, the first girls school for science and technology in Africa. It's called the Africa Science Academy based in Ghana, but we've got young women from all across the continent and they are just outstanding. They're doing the A-levels, Cambridge International A-levels, in maths, further maths and physics, and they're doing them in one year. 
So these are very, very smart girls. The youngest are about 15, 16, some of them 17, 18. They're learning to program, they're studying Mandarin, they're studying philosophy, and they are just absorbing this material. So I'm very excited about its future. Sometimes what you find is that innovation, in places like Africa, innovation can leapfrog because there isn't the infrastructure in place for payments or whatever in some cases, and therefore you get sort of leapfrogs in innovation where it goes straight to the next level. And that's what you've seen with mobile payments, for example. And do you think we'll see an app made in Africa go global at some stage? I'm sure we will. Some of the things that the guys are doing, you know, there are lots of apps being built. But one that someone was telling me about recently was an app that it was a sort of like Google Maps. And it was telling you what the best route was to drive to somewhere. But it would take into account the quality of the roads So the best route wasn't necessarily the most direct route or the main road or whatever, because there might be loads of potholes. And the way that it was collecting that information was, as the cars went over these potholes, the phones in the cars vibrated. And that was feeding back to the app to say, you know, we're getting a lot of vibrations along that road. Now, you sort of think about that kind of thing and you think, I wonder where else that could apply. I wonder what other contexts that could apply in. So what I think we'll see is a proliferation of apps across the continent, maybe in ecology, to do with health, etc., etc., that prove to be useful in an African context. And then people realise, actually, we could use that in London, in New York, in Paris, wherever. And the girls that are going to your school, where will they go afterwards? Are there universities on the continent that will take them? Or will they yeah, be- so there are some great universities on the continent in Ghana, Ashesi University, the University of Ghana, Cape Coast in Nigeria. There are some great universities. The Africa Leadership Academy has a university down towards South Africa in Mauritius over in East Africa. So there are some really strong universities across the continent. There are also universities in other parts of the world that the girls might apply to as well if they get given scholarships. I mean, we've already had some universities in UK, US make offers to them because they're a very special bunch of young women and they've got huge potential. What I don't want to do is I don't want to lose them to the continent. You know, I really want them to wrestle with problems and challenges on the continent and you know smart people need big challenging problems to wrestle with where they can really make a difference and yeah africa has those challenges where you can put your mind to work and say how can i make an impact and just going back to the cybersecurity issue you talked about the growing threats and that these attacks will get bigger and bigger who's going to be doing these attacks It's interesting. You've got a range of what sometimes get called threat actors. They could be nation states. They could be clients of nation states. They could be criminals. They could be activists. They could be white collar workers as well. So what you find is that, and I think this is the dynamic that's happening now, in the past, those threat actors used to be quite separate groups of people. So the teenage hackers or the criminal element or the nation states were different people. Now, gradually, they're coming together, or at least they're sharing capabilities and information. So sometimes you hear a company say, we've been attacked and we believe it was a nation state. Now, companies do that all the time because it looks better if you've 
been the victim of a big breach to say we've been attacked and we believe it was a nation state rather than we've been attacked and we believe it was a 14-year-old boy in, uh, somewhere or other. So you, you can never tell. But the capabilities that some nation states have will be gradually leaking out to the broader community. So it may actually be very advanced capability being used by criminals or by activists and so forth. Also, you need to just consider that the new generation of organised criminals, the lads in their 20s and 30s and the teenagers who are the children or the next generation of the older criminals, are very, very tech-savvy. So they want to go into the family business, they want to make money, but rather than running around knocking people on the head, they are going to gather huge amounts of computing power and put that to work instead. And these days, and as you go forward over the next few years, you'll see much more of a coming together of cybercrime and traditional crime to the point where it'll be odd to think of things as cybercrime or traditional crime. They'll just start to come together. So if you're going to burgle a house, are you just going to burgle the house or are you going to do something in cyberspace to check who's there and whether they're there and so forth? And therefore... Is that a cybercrime or is it a traditional crime? There are elements of both to it. And I think that's what you'll see. It's the coming together of capability, the coming together of the different actors and the coming together of the different types of crime that will change the environment as we go forwards. So you might, for example, switch off the security camera remotely before you go in. You might do that. You might, if a house, for example has systems that are in some way voice controlled. Let's say somebody creates a system whereby I can go up to my front door and I can say, it's Tom, open the front door, and the front door opens. Well, if somebody else can hack that, can they come to my front door and say, it's Tom, and the door swings open? That sort of thing needs to be thought about. And who is therefore going to fight that crime? The police? One of the things on the threat actor side is that the folk on that side of the fence cooperate. They share information. They don't necessarily trust each other, but information moves quickly. If there's a new type of attack, it propagates across that world really quickly. On the good side, that doesn't happen so much because people sort of say, well, it's your problem to sort out. I think that law enforcement, industry, academic and consumer need to come together more. And in particular, industry needs to get a lot, lot smarter with all of these Internet of Thing type of devices that are coming out onto the market. The security side of those devices are nowhere near as sophisticated as the security on servers and all the rest of it, because the people who work in that domain At this stage, they don't think cyber first. They think cyber more as an afterthought, and that needs to shift if we're going to have any hope of staying on top of this. Do you think there's something irresponsible about companies promoting products that perhaps they know aren't as secure as they should be? Yeah, it's definitely irresponsible to do that. I mean, if you knew that the product that you were putting out there had known cybersecurity flaws in it, but you put it out anyway... I'm not sure how that is vastly different from knowing that your product has known health and safety flaws, but you decide to put it out anyway. And I wonder whether we'll get to a point where regulators will start to look at this and start to treat cyber negligence in a similar way to health and safety negligence. One more thing for chief executives to worry about. Absolutely. Next week, we'll hear from Bradley Tusk, 
an investor and political advisor to Uber. He spoke to the FT's Leslie Hook about the highs and lows of the ride-sharing company's rapid expansion, from regulatory hurdles to allegations of sexual harassment. If you'd like to comment on today's show, or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.